Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen concludes her two-part discussion with Mary McGowan on the impact being born blind has on a person's attachment. Welcome back everyone to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I am your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, and I am here to bring you our latest episode. So we are changing things up a little bit this week on the podcast, and we're going to have somebody sharing a personal family experience related to attachment. Uh, The person I'm interviewing is gonna be talking about a family member who was blind, a sibling actually, and then was sent to a school for the blind uh, in an era past that she will be talking about. And just kind of the impact that had on her sibling and how Mary, who I'm going to introduce in a minute, how Mary understands some of that now from an attachment perspective. So let me give you some background on the guest I'm going to be speaking with today. I'm really happy to introduce to you Mary McGowan. She has led the attachment uh, organization called, well, I should say attach um, organization for a number of years since 2011. And that stands for the Association for Training on Trauma and Attachment in Children. And that is an organization I have been involved with for many, many years. I typically go to their conference. It's really a wonderful conference each year. So any of you who are unaware of it, I would recommend it just to put a little commercial in about that before I get back to Mary. So she is the executive director there and she has in her role there implemented a lot of comprehensive training for parents and professionals all across North America. And she works to raise awareness at a national level of how early abuse and neglect impact youth and families. She has also served as a post-adoption specialist for the North American Council on Adoptable Children. And she has done successful grassroots recruitment for foster and adoptive families for the last 10 years. I would also like to add um, that Mary has fostered many children over a period of 26 years. It's a long time to be fostering. And she is the adoptive parent of five children, ranging from ages 13 to 22. Uh, And uh, I'm sure that uh, that is of interest to, to many who listen to our podcast who are interested in foster care and adoption. Um, and so she has a Bachelor of Science degree in psychology, and um, she is a master's candidate in South in counseling and psychological services from St. Mary's University in Minnesota. And so she loves to share her experience and um, in 
and is known for doing so in an engaging and practical manner. And she, because she is also an adoptive parent, she has a lot of real life stories from parenting in the trenches, as well as her professional experience uh, as the leader of Attach and her professional training. So I'm so looking forward to, to hearing her and she's gonna be coming up here next. So stay tuned. So hi everybody, welcome back to the part two of my interview with Mary McGowan. Uh, Mary, thank you so much for being here with us and for the fascinating personal story you're sharing from your family and being vulnerable. Yes, Brene Brown would be proud of you, right? You're, <laughs> you're being vulnerable and sharing, you know, some, you know and, and I'm yeah. joking a little, but I'm also very serious that we really appreciate you, you talking about the situation of uh, continuing from part one and looking at you know what you learned from attachment from having a, a sibling uh, uh, an older sibling who is blind and being taken care of in a care facility and I have to interject um, right now uh, before I forget Mary many years ago uh, I was at a presentation at attach and I I don't know if uh, I know you weren't the executive director though you very melt very well may have been at the conference. I know you've been involved for a very, very long time. But the presenter used um, the story of Helen Keller uh, and showed video clips from, uh, you know what, I, I'm drawing a blank on the movie, but it was Patty Duke and, 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 and uh, I, I forget what the the, the the miracle worker. Goodness gracious! Oh, right, right. And okay. Showed clips from the miracle worker uh, throughout the presentation and said, "If you want to understand attachment, wow. you need to watch the miracle worker." And it was the earlier one where Patty Duke was the little girl, mm -hmm. not the later edition where where Patty Duke plays Ann Sullivan. And, you know, I just wanted to share that for listeners. You know, I feel, I feel like it relates to the topic and it was something at your conference. And I, I actually not only watched the movie, I bought the movie. It is a fascinating movie to watch with the perspective of attachment in your mind. And it reminds me a little bit of what you're talking about. These things were going on with your sister, but you didn't, you weren't looking at it through this lens. And then you begin looking at it through this attachment lens and very different things become real and alive for you. That's so true. And no, I was not there for that. And I just wrote that down because now I have to go back and find out what year it was and who the presenter was and, and, you're right. I've seen that movie, but not through the lens of attachment. So I'm going to be going and uh, renting that and yes, uh, yes. and and watching that through that perception because I think I thought about her as I was um, putting together some notes for this and just thinking about you know the profoundness of of all of her um, sensory issues and how she was still able to connect and. Uh, you know, it is it is telling and it's wonderful. Um, so I'll be looking at that for sure. Yeah. You know, you know, go, go ahead. Well, something else I was thinking about too, as you've been talking about this, is that we tend to have difficulty, I think, sometimes thinking 
in nuanced ways, considering intersectionality, considering it's sort of like, well, she was blind, so anything that she does is because she's blind. Or, you know, this child is this. So, um, you know, uh, one person, um, Rand Coleman, who he's a TheraPlay trainer, and he also specializes in working with um, children on the, the spectrum, mm -hmm. um, autism, Asperger's, we keep changing names, but right. Yeah. Um, and he said, um, you know, you can have this diagnosis and there can still be attachment issues. There can still be traumatizing experiences. So I think, you know, sometimes we're like, we, we find this label and then we just lump everything there. Well, that's because they're on the spectrum or that's because, you know, your sister was blind and we don't piece it out to have a deeper understanding of the person and how we could help you, was what I'm saying kind of resonating at all? Am I making sense? Very much so. I think that's true. I think we, we in our minds, we like to uh, have schemas, if you will. So we like to put yes. things in these little uh, convenient boxes to explain them. It gives us some sort of peace of mind. But these type of things really don't fit in there because then we do kind of generalize and, and make an excuse. They have this. That's why they act like that. And to really understand that no matter what the developmental delay or sensory issues, that if we break it down and look at it and dissect it, if you will, we are able to help in many different levels, developmental levels and areas that before we wouldn't be able to do. And so even now I challenge myself with my sister who is in a care facility, as I mentioned, and, um, you know, has major physical issues, of course, the mental and, and emotional issues. Um, my mother and, and father have um, passed away quite a while ago, and she still thinks that they're alive, and I'll come in and she'll talk about it because she needs that connectedness with them. And, you know, there are times where we, we think, my brother asked me this weekend, she started talking about mom and dad and said, they just left and they're coming back. So you'll get to see him. And he said, I didn't know whether to go along with that or just say, honey, you know, they're not here anymore. And I said, it depends on the situation. We don't want to traumatize her more, but it's things like that, that we need to look at. How do we respond to her? What can I do now to help her and be with her and, still help her feel loved and accepted, even though um, she's, you know, in a bad way, so to speak, you know? Yes, yes, yeah. I was, her birthday is next week, and I was at the store this morning uh, picking out a birthday card for her, and then her staff reads it to her. Mm -hmm. And I had such a hard time because all the cards were like, hey, remember when we did this and remember when we did that and, you know, oh. you're my best friend as my sister and and none of it applied. And again, I got pretty sad because it's like, how can I give a card? I can't give her something that isn't real and because we didn't experience those traditional and typical times together. Uh, right, she right. would come home sometimes in the summer, you know, most times. And so we would have summer together, but it was, it was awkward in a way, you know, we would try to find things in common uh, and do things together. And I remember growing up, my brother, who was two years older than me, he and I would try to 
we would sneak and hide, you know, like, and so we would wait till she went to the bathroom and we'd go and we'd hide behind the chairs in the living room and not make a peep. She wouldn't even be in the doorway. And she goes, I can hear you behind the front door. I can hear you over behind oh the chair. Oh, my goodness. And we were like, wow. You know, it got That's to the amazing. point. Yeah, it got to this point where, you know, again, at the time, we didn't know that it was adaptation. You know, her right. hearing was keen. And no matter how still we hit held and, and stayed she just knew where we were and so it became kind of a fun game with her uh, that she didn't mind it you know she thought it was cool because she loved how impressed we were with her that she was able to no matter where we were she knew where we were in a room and um, you know there's some, it really is and of course especially now understanding what we know about the brain and adaptation and attachment uh, but just to go back you know I found a card and it was wonderful and it you know it just talked about how deep my love is for her and you know that I'm there for her always and it was like, ah, one that I can send and mean and not, you know, create a relationship that wasn't there in that way, but still let her know that she's the world to me. She's my only sister. I have five brothers. And I was just going to ask yeah. how many kids are in your family. Yeah, I'm the youngest, of, the I'm the youngest of seven. <laughs> I was getting the feeling this was quite a brood with how you were talking yeah. <laughs> You know, and you know, on a side lighter note, you know, we may have a, a whole new I, idea to, to add on to your career here. And that is, where are the cards for difficult, complicated relationships that we can't just put all these glowing things that didn't really happen? You know, because I think you probably hit something there for lots of people when they've gone card shopping. Yes. Yeah. It's funny <laughs> you say that, Karen, because many times over the years, I've... I say, I swear I'm going to start my old card company. Really? Because, yes. So that's so funny you said that because I can't draw worth anything. I mean, stick people are the, you know, the, the, uh, yeah, but my ability to draw. But yes, that's, I've thought of that so many times with, you know, yeah. uh, uh, having children from different ethnicities and, you know, all these different scenarios that just don't fit, you know, uh, grandparents, family of origin, all these things. And it's like, boy, and like you said, even first family. And it's, yes, it's like, yeah, you read, you read the first one. Yeah. No, that doesn't capture it. You put it back. Mm, yeah. Like that. That doesn't feel real. That doesn't feel genuine. Nah, let's go back. <laughs> It's so true, you know. And what they haven't—they haven't quite nailed down the the field. But the one thing they did do that create that helps so many of us probably, and many of the listeners will be able to relate to, is just the blank inside cards. So you know, it's a nice picture, but then it's blank, so you get to go yes. in and put what you want to say inside. But you're you're uh, you're making me want to start this business again. <laughs> You know, earlier you mentioned uh, the work that, that Selma Freiberg did and yes. watching the mouth movements, which were exaggerated with uh, hearing, I'm sorry, visually impaired children. The other thing that they found is there's um, uh, 
attention needs to be paid to hand movements. So a lot of infants use hand movements as a sign of interest, of engagement. So, you know, getting back to that tactile. And so not just the smile, it's like, oh, they're smiling, they wanna engage. And then a parent goes over and plays with them or picks them up, which of course then brings in the tactile, which they love, mm-hmm. but their hands. Mm-hmm. So when they, they did some studies and these studies started at six months and and you know that's what I'm finding in the research that almost all the studies start at at least six months and go up and do longitudinal studies so they're able to look at many things but they really are trying to find a way to capture the first six months Mm -hmm. um, in that critical period of uh, development and attachment but they did notice a correlation and a connection with uh, sight impaired infants using their hands and then that was their way of trying to um, engage the caregiver. You know, it's interesting because even so often babies with sight, uh, you'll see them if they're being cradled with a caregiver reaching mm-hmm. up and touching the face uh, or, or you know, the hair or whatever of the caregiver. And yeah. um, it reminds you of a young infant and I've many times in theraplay if a parent is cuddling even with an older child i will see those gestures that look so much younger okay um, as they're reaching for the face of the caregiver and it's just very beautiful it is and i'm reflecting again on my sister where i realized when i was older how important that was and you know and so i would she would say, oh, when, you know, I, my first baby, you know, oh, I wish I could see him or, and I'd say, come here, you know, I'd take her hand and I'd do the same thing and just, oh, how nice. and she would just, she just started crying and she said, oh, look at how much hair he has. And, oh, you know, I that, love it. Yeah. And, and it was just like, it was such a simple thing. Right. To do that. I, you know, but it just made his or her world uh, to be able to actually feel. And then I would let her feel mine. You know, she's like, what length is your hair anyway? You know, oh. and it's things we don't even think about. And it's like, yes. well, it used to be really long and now I've cut it shorter. Come here, you know? And then I'd have her feel my hair and she'd be like, wow, we have the same super thick curly hair. And I'm like, we do, you know? And and, and things like that that are so, uh, I don't know, commonplace to us, realizing what a difference it made to her to be able to tactile, have that tactile engagement and and kind of see with her hands because that's what she was doing and it made such a difference for her. I can't count the number of times that tears came to her eyes because she was able to touch something that normally would be, quote, off limits. Well, you can't go up and touch somebody's face when you meet them. Hi, I'd like you to meet Karen. And, you know, she comes up and touches your face. Knowing you in your heart, you would let her because you mm-hmm. understand it, but yeah. a lot of people don't. But that that is things like that that we don't think of that can really be helpful, take away that embarrassment yeah. for them and from us and just let her experience it in with one of her senses. It was right. So, so, and so, you know, what I hear, what you're saying is 
you know, it has to be safe and comfortable for, for both people, but we have exactly. to look at some different boundaries. Like, mm-hmm. you know, cause someone could say, no, we have to teach her boundaries. She can't reach out and just like touch people, but right. no, it would be, let's see ways that that can be okay. Because this is, you know, we, we don't want to invade someone's space. Like you said, no. you, you would prepare someone or whatever, but we don't want to just say, no, you don't do that. Exactly. Exactly. So you ask like anything, just like with children with attachment issues, you don't just go and throw your arms around me. You say, could I have a hug? No. Okay. How about a high five or a fist bump? Okay. You know, that kind of thing. It's the same thing. We respect both parties and sides and, and you talk about it. You don't ever like invade somebody's privacy, but you know, or sometimes people think of it, you know, if you were meeting her, you might say, Hey Lynn, if you want to, um, touch my face and kind of get to know what I look like, feel free. You know, that kind of thing. I think she'd probably fall backwards because it's so rare, uh, that, that people understand it at that level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now, Mary, are you, you've obviously put a lot of thought into this and, and thought about it a lot. And are you, or is attached putting together any kind of curriculum or, you know, public service announcements, awareness of these kind of issues? Like how, what are unique ways to build attachment and connection if you, your child is blind or your child has some sort of disability well it's um like i mentioned as as i'm preparing and thinking about this yes it's like yes there has to be some curriculum developed to to teach people to bring that awareness and like with alexis you know with her work with the hearing impaired i'm thinking maybe we should do a workshop our our conference is right here in minnesota next year and she's here you know to be able to put something together to really help people give them insight on something that i i don't remember going anywhere and hearing something on issues like this not um and i think it's important i think we're definitely going to look into that for sure yeah I should get Michael Trout and and he can come in and and do a presentation yes, uh, as well. Yes, yes. So what are some other, you know, things on the front of your mind about this or or real takeaways that you would want people to have related to this discussion? What else is on your mind about this topic? Well, I want, I I just want to bring up a couple things. One, uh, we haven't discussed yet, and that is not only when an infant is born blind, um, do we have to look at, well, how can we teach them to attach and adjust and use other senses, but the other impact to their attachment with their primary caregiver or caregivers is their reaction to their blindness. Mm. Okay. So if they're born blind and it's just like, oh, yuck, kind of a disgusted, put off, oh, I don't want a blind child. What did I do wrong? And I know that sounds funny, but we know that parents do that. So there may be a type of rejection yes. from the parent or the opposite overprotection. Mm. And, and again, just really burying my soul, I would say, you know, that uh, my sister had two attachment styles with my mom and dad, which is 
common if people don't know that, but you can have two different attachment styles. My mom overprotected her because she was worried about her. My dad, I think, rejected her initially because he, you know, back then again, he it's like he did something wrong to have a child born blind, that kind of thing. And so imagine that in the context of attachment. Wow, that baby senses everything, right? So they're gonna sense if you're holding them rigid or you're not engaging with them. And so that's a big piece of this that we have to take away the stigma of, you know, there's something wrong with me or with my child uh, so that we can support parents. And then the reaction of relatives or extended family or neighbors or friends, if they act rejected or if they're like, oh, you poor thing, you know, and, and maybe uh, the mom is depressed from it initially and they can enable that depression. They can enable those negative feelings of rejection or overprotection. And so it's just a piece I wanted to bring up to make sure that people understand like anything, if we don't love and connect with our babies, uh, they're going to know it. You can't hide it. You cannot hide it from infants when you don't want them or you feel disgusted by them. And so the most important thing I think that we can do is awareness. It's okay. They can attach. They can love you. You can interact with them. You did nothing wrong. And get that education piece out there to help support parents from day one. Most of and, the time, go ahead. Yeah, and I just wanted to add, you're walking around it, and I'm sure you would agree, but I want to specifically say the word um, and work with the parents' grief. Yes. I you know, we all, um, those of us who are, are, are wanting to have children, we have a fantasy in our mind of what that is going to look like and, and what that's going to be like. And, you know, everyone says, you know, I just want a healthy baby. And so um, when your baby is, is born with, you know, a, a disability or something unexpected, um, not only is it not your fault, but it's okay to work through your feelings of grief about that. Because I think that when people try to bury that and pretend they don't feel that, uh, and it goes unconscious underground, whatever we want to say, that's where it has more power. I'm so glad you brought that up. And it really is true because a grief reaction is common. It's, you know, and you watch the stages of grief, if you will, the shock, the denial, the depression, and then coming around and uh, very valid point that we need to be there and support as they go through a grieving process of this isn't like I thought it would be. I, I, liken that to um, uh, some adopted children with special needs and uh, especially perhaps for those that are unable to have their own and when they adopt they they uh, still have some expectations like you said we all do it's human nature yes. Yes. you know we're gonna be here and maybe it's college or maybe it's you know something and then the reality that maybe this child isn't able to meet those needs and preconceived ideas and desires and dreams that we have as a parent. Yes. We need help going through that grief and coming to realization of comparing our child to our child. So how are they growing individually compared to themselves and not to others and not a norm that we have? And that is not an easy thing to do. And it can take years to let go of those 
um, desires that, oh, I wanted my children to go to college or I wanted them to, you know, whatever it might be, uh, that those are important things that we need to be there for our, ch- for our parents. We're there a lot for the children and youth and we need to be, but we can never forget about our grieving parents yes. and be there to have their back and support them. Yes. So the being other- aware of the reactions we're having, the reactions that others are having, right. all of that our baby, our child is feeling. Yes. Agree. That's a good way to put it. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the more that we can reach out and be there, normalize it, if you will. I hate no- the word normal. Uh, I say the only, the only thing that's truly normal is a cycle on your washing machine. <laughs> you know? but, uh, and, even, and that often doesn't work for all. Well, that's true, too. <laughs> <laughs> what we can do to be there. And it, again, it's awareness. So as, as the field of attachment grows, we get more specific now, which is so important. We looked at it generally, attachment and trust. Now we're looking at it through a, a new lens, a more specific lens. And that's why I thought this topic was so important to look at because we need to get specific so that there's people out there that probably have this situation or know someone who had a, a, a baby that was born uh, vision impaired and what can we do and when can we do it? Uh, the research again shows that we start too late by the time they get the services and the understanding and actually talk with somebody that says oh hey here's what you can do there's it's already well down the road and so a lot of the attachment issues have already started and Mm -hmm. so i think a movement here would be to start it right away and and get in there when when um when that baby is first in the house and even uh neonatally you know yes yeah so you know early intervention and support you know we just can't seem to get our brains around that in our country we just keep having to beat that drum that you know that will save money in the long run really truly everything is showing this um so it's worried about dollars and cents you're not you know exactly motivated by the humanity of it which unfortunately we can prove it saves dollars and cents too (laughs) that's so true i'm not sure why this concept is so difficult uh like you said even if it's not from an altruistic we do the right thing because it's the right thing to help humanity and others but look the almighty dollar uh is going to help so much the prisons and the you know homeless and all the crime all the different things out there to to bring early intervention and hope to our children and families that that movement will not stop and and uh it may be done by organizations like ours and individuals like us but we just need to keep moving it forward so that we can make a difference for generations to come Yes, absolutely. And so I want to give you a few moments if there's any additional thoughts that that you want to share on this topic before we move to, you know, how to find you and what's going on with Attach and any great announcements you want about your work and your organization outside of this topic. Well, I just appreciate the ability to talk about my sister's story. I have often thought about a keynote all over. I thought about doing it as a keynote and never quite had the uh, 
gumption to to do it and and I think it's important that uh, I tell this story I'm glad that you have given a forum for this conversation and I I hope that it will spread and help many people uh, understand a little bit more or at least dig into it enough to say I need to know more about this and uh, I, I just I think it's a wonderful topic Karen I think that um, your podcasts are vital right now because it's a way for people to glean information from from experts and people around the field and with your knowledge combined I think it's really making a difference and I just hope that we can continue to do um, stories like this so that we're hearing firsthand not only from an intellectual and and you know, educational perspective, but from a personal perspective, uh, the pain that you go through when you are raised with someone who has suffered and you were unable to help them connect and attach with other humans, it's, it's heartbreaking, but it's also motivating to move forward and help others who are in yeah. the same situation. Indeed, and please thank your sister for giving permission for you to talk about and share her story and your story together. Absolutely. All right. So, hey, where can listeners find what's going on with Attach, what you guys have to offer? If you want to share a couple sentences about what you guys do and I know your conference will be coming up again this fall. So, hey, the floor is yours for your public service announcements and, right. and, and marketing. Wonderful. <laughs> All right. So, attach, if you just go to attach.org, A T T A C H.org, you will find all of our trainings. You'll find information on our 2020 conference, which will be right here in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota area on October 1st through the 3rd. Right now, there's requests for proposals out. And so, we encourage you to go online and get in a great workshop, something unique like this that we can uh, continually reach out to to others and share some of this information uh, we also do advanced uh, therapeutic training an 80-hour postgraduate course for therapists so that they can be certified in trauma and attachment we have parent support services uh, with online parent supports weekly and many many other things and of course if you'd like to talk to me further about this uh, just contact us at info at and I'd be happy to talk with you further Great. Thank you so, so much. And Thanks, I, Karen. I really appreciate this conversation today and your time. It's been absolutely wonderful. Well, I appreciate it too. And I'm excited to uh, hear the, the, the works that you do in the future. So thanks so much, Karen. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.